We have found using this measure of focus that companies with above average revenue concentration with fewer therapy areas defined at that customer level and more leadership positions in more of their therapy areas of focus had most of the net growth in the top 20 pharma companies in the last decade. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. Today's episode, we're talking about the value of focus, specifically in the context of defining and pursuing a portfolio strategy within a pharmaceutical or medtech business. Here with me to discuss is my colleague, Josh Hassam. Thanks, Jen. Um, yeah, great to be here too. I appreciate it. I'm Josh Haddam. I'm an associate partner in our Philadelphia office um, at ZS. Um, I'm part of our pipeline and launch strategy practice area. And the specific hat that I wear within that practice area is leading our portfolio strategy capability. So when you say portfolio strategy, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, great question. Um, so this is an aspirational view of portfolio strategy. But when, when we talk about what good looks like in portfolio strategy for, for pharma companies, what that really means is having a five to 10 year vision, a long-term vision for your commercial portfolio around a few areas of focus and using that vision to work backwards into a strategy for how you allocate capital today to best set yourself up to achieve that vision in the future. And what that means is product development decisions should be guided by this vision. R&D resource allocation should be guided by this vision and, and BD and licensing decisions that you make should be guided by this vision. Um, this is really driven by the fundamental economics of pharma. That's what drives the need for having a portfolio strategy like this. It's the, the high fixed cost of R&D and commercial. Um, it's the low probability of success. It's the fact that we've mostly run out of multi-billion dollar single indication product opportunities in this industry. You need multiple things to get to scale. Great. And so when we're, we're talking about these multiple things that are needed to get to scale, how does that add value? Yeah. So this is where the notion of focus comes in, right? Everyone defines focus a bit differently. If you, if you just take a, a scan of, uh, of annual reports and JP Morgan presentations, you'll hear all kinds of ways that, that large pharma companies or small pharma companies define their focus. They're, sometimes it's disease-oriented. Sometimes it's novel technologies like cell and gene therapy. Sometimes it's scientific domains like oncogenomics. Um, sometimes it's more general metrics that they want to hit, more blockbusters, higher R&D throughput. From our standpoint, we, we actually did an analysis of the last decade of data for the 20 largest pharma companies in the world to look for a link between focus and shareholder value. The way we defined focus in that research was about the customer, highly related to diseases, but fundamentally about who the treating physicians are and treating those as, as, as areas of focus. We actually used American Medical Association specialties to as, as the unit of focus in a portfolio. Um, and we found using this measure of focus that companies with above average revenue concentration with fewer therapy areas defined at that customer level and more leadership positions in more of their therapy areas of focus had 
most of the net growth in the top 20 pharma companies in the last decade. They had that growth with 13 more points of operating margin, um, and they had more than double the total shareholder return of their peers over that decade. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a fascinating piece of work to do because on the surface, focus seems like a good thing, right? It seems like it would pay off, right? But to actually be able to quantify this in terms of shareholder value, it's powerful. Um, what do you think has really kind of driven the value in this kind of strategy? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And the and I think we have, we have some strong theories about it, at least some of which have actually been, um, I think, pretty well validated in the real world. One is that markets reward clear stories and corporate vision. Being able to articulate clearly where you're going as a, as a company um, plays, plays well to investors, plays well to external stakeholders. There's, there's the fundamental synergies of scaled business units like we were talking about initially. And that can, come from, that can come from commercial synergies, but it can also come from places like rebating and supply chain synergies as well. In the commercial context, we have demonstrated as a, as a firm that there is value to developing stronger customer relationships and stronger customer experience. And that's something that's much easier to do when you have scale and a more complete portfolio of solutions to bring to those customers. On the, on the R&D side, there's value too. There's value in getting really knowledgeable about the science in a few focus areas and improving the odds of making a good gamble through that expertise. And this, uh, this actually played out um, uh, very, very nicely in a paper that Pfizer published um, a couple of months ago on their sort of reinvention of the way that they, they do development over the last decade, where they, they found that narrowing their focus in therapy areas from 10 broad spaces to five meaningfully helped them achieve better PTRS probability of technical and regulatory success through phase two and phase three. So that's really fascinating to have that kind of evidence that actually points to the benefit of, of focus. But so often we, we hear of companies resisting this, right? Like this idea that focus is bad. Like what do you, what do you think drives that belief? It is pervasive, as you say. I think there's a, there is the broad risk aversion in the industry. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating dynamic, I think, because um, especially for large pharma companies, these are, are scaled businesses that are trying to be blue chip stocks, right? They're, um, they're, they're dividend payers consistently, but the economics behind their business are extremely high risk very capital intensive. It's a, it's a hard dynamic to, to manage. It does lead to this misperception that focus itself is bad, that you can't achieve growth if you have too narrow a focus. And I do believe that diversification of the types of products you develop for a disease area or a therapy area is good. Having diversification at a modality or mechanism level, identifying what, what you believe is most likely to work or the handful of things that are most likely to work for a disease you want to solve um, and, and, and going after multiple opportunities in that space, I think is good. The, the problem with a scattershot approach to development across many different diseases is that you end up having to commercialize a bunch of undersized businesses and you end up with minimal pipelines behind those businesses that won't sustain them in the long term. Um, you, have to, you have to think about where these products end up. Companies have finite resources 
they can improve their odds of doubling down where they have natural ownership, where they have expertise or can differentially drive value. Yeah, you know, it's a great point. And I think something that we're, we're seeing playing out in the industry all the time. In fact, I, I think there's a recent announcement from Bluebird Bio that they were separating their rare disease in oncology businesses in order to have this enhanced focus and increased operational um, efficiency. Kind of pulling on, you know, that example you mentioned, Pfizer. Are there other examples of, of companies that have really pursued this? And, and what does good look like? To me, the, the quintessential example of focus is, is Novo Nordisk in endocrinology, where they've focused for, for many decades. I think they would, they would say, you know, since the 1920s. Um, if you take a Novo Nordisk and you compare them to a highly diversified company like a, like a Sanofi, um, Sanofi has something like two times the revenue, something like a third higher EBITDA than Novo, but Novo's market cap is around 25% higher than Sanofi's is today. So you have to, you have to ask why. That, that example, by the way, also defies the, the common wisdom in the industry today that a company has to be in oncology or rare disease in order to support high margin growth. That's, that's simply not true. Um, I, I also want to recognize that every company can't be Novo. There are many companies that get more than two thirds of their revenue from their top three therapy areas, which was our benchmark for, um, for having focus in, in a large pharma context. Companies like Gilead, Amgen, BMS after the cell gene merger, Eli Lilly, GSK, AstraZeneca are all, all examples of this. Um, Roche is also another example, actually, and they're one of the largest pharma companies in the world. Um, and over the last decade, they saw stronger growth than any below average focused pharma company in that top 20 list because of their tremendous pipeline focus in oncology. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. But I imagine there were also risks as well and, and probably case studies in those. Definitely. It's, and it, yeah, I, I think you're, you're exactly right, Jen. You have to acknowledge the, the risks in focus too, as you're acknowledging the benefits. Uh, Lilly and AstraZeneca are actually good cautionary tales for this from the last decade, both due to pretty catastrophic LOEs that they experienced. Lilly lost around 70% of their psychiatry business between 2011 and 2015 because of Cymbalta going off patent. AstraZeneca had a, a similar size loss in, in psychiatry from uh, Seroquel, um, and that was compounded by an LOE for Crestor that happened around the same time. Lilly responded to this by doubling down on diabetes and medical oncology, and also significantly restructured their, their R&D in the late 2010s. Um, essentially, over that, over that decade, Lilly recovered all of the revenue that they lost from their, their big psych LOE, and they ended the decade with actually a very strong total shareholder return despite the dip in growth in the middle of the decade. To me, this, this risk really underscores the importance um, of, of focused companies building nimbleness into their models. Most, most of the focused companies in our data set um, actually had to shift one or more of their therapy areas over that 10-year period. So they, they kept focused, but they substituted one of their areas of focus for a new one. Um, and this, this type of shift is very hard to do. Focus is very sticky. The, and this is 
why you need to take this long-term view, this five to 10 year view, and also have an active VD function to go along with it. Yeah, so it's always being prepared for the, the opportunity and to, to kind of pivot when you need. So it seems like these benefits of focus are really obvious, but why don't we always see them reflected in strategy? You know, what are the challenges that organizations face in putting this into action? Yeah, I was uh, honest in acknowledging up front that this was an aspirational vision. <laughs> um, uh, that, that really is true. Um, so outside of the risk aversion that I mentioned before, I think there are a few drivers of organizational hesitancy or, or, or roadblocks that get in the way of achieving this vision. Um, one of them is the misaligned incentives between R&D and commercial. In the real world, in real world decision-making, risk and reward have to be balanced. That's true in our daily lives as much as it is in how we invest in the stock market. Um, in, in a, in a uh, pharma context, um, there's, there's often not a complete understanding of risk and reward trade-offs as big decisions are being made in the portfolio. Um, and, that, and that is partly due to this divide in incentives. R&D is, is incentivized to minimize risk. Commercial's goal is to maximize the upside. If those two sides aren't talking and bringing equal weight to the table as decisions are being made, then fundamentally risk and reward is not going to be balanced. There's also a challenge of path dependence and human bias that comes into play. You have to think about how these uh, clinical programs and, and new molecular entities come to be. Discovery organizations are incented to be exploratory, identify many new targets and compounds. Clinical leads for these compounds can spend a decade working on the idea just to get it into clinic only to have it shut down by, um, by you know, commercial realities 10 or 15 years into their exploration. It's, it's, it's very hard to, um, to, to kill the baby. And then lastly, there's a, there's a cultural barrier. Uh, I, I, I see this especially in the large pharma companies that I work with. And to, to, be, to be sort of crass about it, R&D sees commercial influence as somewhere between scientifically naive or even Machiavellian <laughs> commercial very crassly sometimes sees R&D as confused about the for-profit nature of the pharma business model. I, personally, I don't think that the, the need to quote, follow the science, which is the, the mantra of uh, a lot of um, pharma R&D organizations, that that, that that actually has to conflict with having commercial focus. The, the two can be linked, this cultural barrier can be bridged if there's alignment around diseases we want to solve. Yeah, I, I think the whole follow the science is something that comes up a lot, particularly with this idea of um, disease leadership and, and building that as the kind of foundation or aspiration for your portfolio. Um, and I've often heard this idea kind of challenged as um, actually the strength of your TA or portfolio strategy comes down to an individual product like having a best in class product. And if you don't have that, you know, does it really matter? Cause the best product will always win. So does it, is that for you? <laughs> it's a great question. And, and look, I, you know, I would, I would be kidding myself if I, if I didn't say there's, you know, there's no substitute for a, a multi-billion dollar 
product, right? There's there's no substitute for having Humera or Keytruda in your bag. Um, but I also don't believe that a pharma company can base their long-term strategy on black swans. These these products are extremely rare by definition, and they're actually getting rarer. Um, that's it, it's it is equivalent to planning for retirement by buying lottery tickets. It's not a it's not a sustainable way to to grow and a sustainable way to build a footprint in the in the market. It do, it does feel like every time I speak on this topic, someone asks about Keytruda. Um, this is, this story is actually in the in the public domain, so I can talk about it. Um, for those who don't know, Merck acquired Keytruda as part of their acquisition of Sharing Plow in 2009. Um, and when, when they bought Keytruda, they really did not know the gold that they were sitting on. They actually shuttered the preclinical Keytruda program for, for the pembrolizumab compounds um, initially after the acquisition. And they, and they didn't turn it back on until they saw really compelling data come out on Opdivo from BMS. And they, the, the lesson in this story is that you just can't plan for outliers like that, whether good or bad. So all the more reason to be thoughtful in how you invest in the rest of the portfolio. There's a, um, a quote from the former US President Eisenhower that I, I, I really like. Um, and it, it goes like this, it's plans are worthless, but planning is everything. In, in pharma, in this portfolio strategy context, planning is the exercise of designing the future portfolio and how to invest capital today to be in the best position to realize that vision. We have to recognize that a lot of clinical development is luck, so your exact vision for that future portfolio will never come true, but that's not really the point. You should still control the controllables. Yeah, and, and I think that's the essence of it, right? Like we we are looking at an increasingly competitive environment. How are we preparing ourselves? How are we thinking through these future scenarios and where we're going to compete? So, you, you know, you touched on it with both oncology and I think also um, if we think about rare disease, you know, is, is focused and having a portfolio strategy a competitive edge or is it going to become table stakes when we look ahead in the future in this very competitive world? Yeah. I, I do believe that it will become increasingly about table stakes in the future, having focus. A, bit, a big driver is what I think many people acknowledge at this point, that there's a, there has been a systematic decline in the return on investment in R&D. This industry is getting more difficult, right? Whether, whether that's driven by um, the you know increasing clinical trial costs, whether it's driven by pricing pressure once you're in market, um, whether it's driven by you know few, having fewer white spaces, less low hanging fruit, um, the the that that fundamental challenge of declining ROI on R and D is really driving this need for for increasing focus, um, and and making tougher decisions about where to play and where not to play. In places like oncology that you mentioned, the pipeline intensity is insane. I, I, I do believe we may be approaching the point where the, the typical value of new products starts to decline in oncology, where um, we did a, a, a scan of the 
um, of the oncology pipeline over the next five to 10 years. And about 75% of all launches we expect to happen are what I would call a disruptor or a, a novel mechanism of action entering an indication where there is an existing standard of care. Um, but at, at some point, that market becomes saturated. Um, and that, that just underscores the general need to toughen up, make stronger decisions about capital allocation, um, both, both where to invest as well as where not to invest. Great. I mean, I think you covered a lot of interesting elements to this and also brought in some really tangible real world examples. If you were having a conversation with a, a pharmaceutical executive about what they need to do in order to, to build a successful portfolio strategy, what are the, the three takeaways you'd have for them? Great question. So I, I think the, the first one is really recognizing where your company has strength and where it doesn't. There are examples, there are plenty of examples of companies importing strengths that they don't have through generally larger scale acquisitions. But in general, companies tend to be the most successful in areas where they already have strength and expertise. The Gilead and Galapagos partnership that just fell apart is a great example of, <laughs> of the challenge that comes from not relying on where your strengths are. The second thing I would say is the, the sort of top-down, forward-looking visioning is not something that happens nearly as much as it should in pharma today. A, a, lot, a lot of what becomes the portfolio strategy is really a retrospective view of the asset level or disease area level decisions that, that your organization has made for you. Um, taking commands of that longer term strategic vision for the portfolio is something that pharma executives should be doing. And the, and the last point is, is really about pulling that vision through. In order to see that come to, to pass, you have to push that vision down and operationalize it through things like changing the incentive structure of asset teams that are making calls and, and getting a clearer understanding of the opportunity for individual compounds and making indication um, expansion plans, life cycle management plans for those compounds. Um, it, it, it has to be a vision plus the, plus the operationalization in order to, to realize this broader vision of portfolio strategy in pharma. Fascinating. Well, it was great chatting with you today, Josh. Really appreciate the insights and perspectives that you brought. Thank you so much, Jen. That's it for this episode of the CS Associates podcast. I'm Jennifer Curtis. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.